we're getting ready to have a live session. So I don't play jazz. I'm not a swinger. My good friend Jason Crane. Now it's jazz. Now it's jazz. Now it's now it's now it's jazz. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is a jazz interview podcast that features lives and stories of the people who play, write about, and love jazz. It's more than a podcast. At the show's website, thejazzsession.com, you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. On this week's show, my guest is saxophone and clarinet player Victor Goins. Goins has made quite a name for himself with seminal bands like the Winton Marsalis Septet and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. In addition to touring the world with those bands, he's also an accomplished leader in his own right and the director of the jazz program at Juilliard in New York. Victor Goins has a new CD on Crisscross called New Adventures. From it, here's the Alvin Batiste composition, Cochise. <laughs> My guest is Victor Goins. He's got a new record on Crisscross called New Adventures. This uh, this record, I gotta say, man, is a very diverse album. From one track to the next, it really uh, it covers a lot of bases in the jazz landscape. But talk a little bit about uh, how, you, first of all, how you put the band together and who's on the album with you. Well, I have to give credit where it's due. Jerry Teagans, who is the owner of Crisscross, actually recommended the rhythm section. Um, Ruben, uh, on this case, is Carlos Enriquez. Uh, Greg Hutchison and Peter Martin. Peter Martin and I go back some time ago in New Orleans when he decided to move there from St. Louis. Uh, Carlos Enriquez, I have a present relationship him with the with the uh, Winter Marcellus ensembles that participate along with the, the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra. And Greg Hutchison has been a favorite of mine for many years. I have to say, you know, he's, he's one of the fantastic drummers. So the opportunity to record with them was a good feeling. It, it just made sense. And with all of the music that they actually have knowledge of, it allowed for the music to take the different type of diverse paths that you're speaking about. 
So talk about that a little bit. I mean, on, on here, one of the cool things I like about this record, first of all, is that from the very first moment of Stop and Go, I kept thinking, if I heard, this is one of your tunes, but it sounds like a tune that I should have been able to recognize, right? It just sounds like a tune I've always been hearing. And uh, talk a little bit about how kind of some of the music came out of you and uh, really evokes some, some styles. Stop and Go, for instance, is, um, I think it has the influences of, of Sonny Rollins in it for me. And even the, the melody, it's just a little riff that I kind of picked up from Sonny Rollins in my transcriptions along the way. Um, so it became a tune that, that evolved at a concert some years ago at the St. Lucia Jazz Festival, I think it was. And um, so you hear, hopefully, the, the spirit of Sonny Rollins inside of the song, um, the way Sonny has the freedom of rhythm to play across and the harmonic knowledge to be able to play across the ball lines and through the harmony without any kind of restrictions and whatnot. That was the goal in it. And it's got kind of a drone through it that gives you yeah. some more freedom in there. It right? has that drone in there and it allows the, the soloist to be able to to um, superimpose harmonic type of uh, melodic ideas on top of that drone in the first chorus of their solos. And then after that, we go to a straight ahead uh, rhythm changes. But at the same time, that rhythm section was so free that once we got into the regular part of the walking, they actually took an opportunity to really to, to be out there and, and explore all of the harmonic and rhythmic background. That mean to say a rhythm section is free well i think when i in this case when i say they're free and that they are so well versed on their instruments and they're so informed with the jazz language that there are few restrictions of course no one is is perfect because it's impossible to have knowledge of all of the music that exists today but these guys i think have been able to internalize a tremendous body of works so as a result there's few restrictions that they had to deal with if we I took it a certain harmonic direction. I felt comfortable that Peter Mart was going to be able to anticipate and find out where I was going to be at. Carlos Enriquez, if I took a certain rhythmic direction with his pulse on the bass, he usually jumped into it immediately, if not sometimes led me places where I thought I might have wanted to go. And Greg Hutchison was, um, he's secure enough as a drummer, period, that uh, he's able to make sure that with all of the, the things that are going on, He's the, the, the cement that keeps everything in place along the way, at the same time taking a risk with the band, but knowing that he can actually pull it back together whenever we needed him to. And is listening the key to all, everything you just described? Absolutely, because we're having a dialogue on the bandstand, and we're having a, a really an organic conversation with, with some great musicians. So listening is a very important part of what's going on, and then participating in the conversation is a very important part of it. How did you learn to listen as a musician? I mean, it seems to me like people have to actually acquire that skill, right? It's not. That's a good question. And the answer came to me pretty quickly when you asked that. Um, in my early stages of performing with Ellis Marcellus back in New Orleans at a place called Snug Harbor, 
quite often I would go to the gig and um, he would call the tunes on the band and he wouldn't call them ahead of time. So it required for me to really pay attention to what was going on. So I'd be there with my real book and I would be trying to turn the pages to the song he would be performing, but he would change in the middle of it. So I really had to pay attention. So after trying different things to see if that would work, and I realized that wasn't going to work because he was always going to do something I wasn't prepared for. I decided that I would just listen to what he was going to play exclusively and try to learn the melodies on the bandstand. And if I was not able to catch a melody the first time around, I would stand behind him and try to learn it there. And then if I still didn't catch it, I would, I would ask him to play some of the melody inside of his comping styles on the bass solo. And he would do that for me. And as a result, it became like an ear training course in real time. So that um, it just became part of what I do now to listen to people become fun because I like to know how what people are thinking and how they function. And I believe that the more that I know about how someone does whatever they're doing, it gives me that much more of an opportunity to be able to interact with them. You said a few minutes ago that there's times when a, a member of the band will take you someplace that uh, maybe you didn't even realize you wanted to go or you th- were thinking about going, but he goes there first. When you're in a studio setting, do you have the freedom to do that? Absolutely. I think you also have to be willing to take the chance in that situation, too, because I don't know about a lot of other musicians. But I don't, I don't want to work my solo out ahead of time in the studio. I like to practice the tune so I have some options before me. But I also go up in there with um, the realization that I hired these great musicians to come into the recording session so they can bring to the table what they have to offer. So if I go up in there and I'm not honest enough to, to take some chances with them, then I might as well hire anybody to come in there and just play exactly what I practice. So in the studio, I do try to take some freedom, some liberties, and some risk. Now, you mentioned uh, Ellis Marsalis. You and the Marsalises have been part of each other's lives since you were knee-high to that old grasshopper everybody talks about, right? We go back quite a bit. Um, Winton and I, as it turns out, we went to kindergarten together. Now, we didn't know each other as early as that, but it, it's really ironic that we have gone back that far. We did become very familiar with each other in elementary school, but um, that kindergarten is named Martinez. It's a very popular kindergarten in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um and as we were in elementary school, we actually, along with Branford, became very involved in the elementary school honor band system that existed, particularly one at Jesuit High School. And there was a conductor director named Marion Kaluta who was responsible for taking the most outstanding students around the greater New Orleans area and put together a concert band. And as Destiny would turn out, we all found ourselves there again as we got into high school, performing in all state ensembles and orchestras together. And so it... It has been a tremendous opportunity, I think, for, for all parties involved because being musicians now, we're in our 40s. I always say that you meet your friends when you're young. And to have friends that go back that far that you interact on a day-to-day basis is really a tremendous privilege um, for me, I have to say. Particularly doing something as intimate as playing music. Absolutely, because there's a trust factor that's that's there that... I think uh, surpasses the one that most of us have the opportunity to develop with musicians we work with. So you started studying with Ellis, was it after college? Is that when you really started studying with him in earnest? Or I was a junior in college at the time, and Winton was probably out with his own band, the Winton Marcellus Quintet, which was Branford Marcellus, Kenny Kirkland, Jeff Watts, and drummer du jour. I mean bass du jour, because the bass player always changed. This is the late 80s now we're talking about? Early, or? early 80s, like 1983, 82. He had just come out with that first record of his entitled Wood Marcellus. But anyway, he was visiting home one time and um, on one occasion and asked me 
Well, I asked him actually. I, I said, "Hey, man, um, what do I need to do, in your opinion, to get to the next level?" And having the kind of respect for him that I I did then and I do now, he said, "Man, you need to study with my dad." I had never studied with his dad. I didn't go to New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts like he did in Bradford and Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison. Um, I went to an all-boys school by the name of St. Augustine High School. So I said, okay, well, sounds like I need to call your dad. So I called him, and uh, I asked Mr. Marcellus, would he, would he take me as a student of his? And he agreed to. Uh, I wasn't surprised, but then again, I was surprised. You know, he is, he's Ellis Marcellus. He's, to me, he is the, the premier pianist and has always been. There's never been a doubt. Um so when he took me as a student of his, I used to study with him weekly, and we would have assignments that he would give me. But most of all, it gave me the opportunity to study historical perspective of the saxophone. He exposed me to the entire instrument. So um, after a year of studying with him, he decided that he was going to put a band together again of young musicians. And then that band, of course, was Ellis Marcellus, but it was myself, a drummer by the name of Noel Kendricks, and a bass player by the name of Reginald Veal. So that was my first introduction to Reginald Veal, and we used to play with Ellis Marcellus, and um, we would play around New Orleans, then we started traveling around the United States a little bit, then abroad a bit. So um, we played together for some two and a half years in New Orleans, and at that time, in 1986, Mr. Marcellus was afforded an opportunity to go teach at Virginia Commonwealth University. I remember we were going to Asia to do a tour for the United States Information Agency when he informed us of it. He said, look, man, when I get back, I'm taking this job at Virginia Commonwealth, so y'all need to figure out what y'all going to do. So I'm like, oh, man, we just started getting started. You know, that's, that's unfortunate. So anyway, um, we some of us made certain decisions about what we were going to do. I was teaching at the time. I was teaching mathematics. So um, as he left and started his career teaching at Virginia Commonwealth University, an opportunity came to me once again via Ellis Marcellus, which is to go to Virginia Commonwealth University and get my master's. And I've always been an advocate of education, not only as a teacher, but as a student. So I was like, well, if somebody's going to pay for me to go to school, I'm going to school. And then I'm going to go study with my mentor. Oh, man, there's no doubt about it. So I ran up to Virginia as quickly as I could to study with Ellis Marcellus for the next year and a half. Um, and we had a lot of interaction. A lot of times I'd, I'd be by his home. You know, it was only the two of us. His family was up there, his wife and, and her, her mother and his son, Jason. But it was, you know, it was really like two people being in a place where they really didn't know a lot of other people. So I had a, a, a many, many days of, of interaction with him in a very unique and personal way. Shortly after that, I decided to uh, go up to New York for the first stay I was going to have in New York in 1989. Soon after that, Ellis Marcellus was offered the opportunity to come back down to New Orleans and be the, the chair of the jazz studies program at the University of New Orleans. So... um that started for him in 1987, I think it was, maybe 1988. But anyway, um, I was playing in New York on Black and Blue, and an opportunity became available to me to study, I mean to teach this time, at Loyola University in New Orleans. So I traveled back down there um, to become an assistant professor of saxophone at Loyola University as my former teacher, Paul McGinley, was taking a leave of absence. And uh, when that year expired, the University of New Orleans decided that they were going to invite a saxophone instructor to their campus. So they had to do a national search, as all universities usually do. And my name became a part of that search, and I was very fortunate to get that position. So while I was in a position to be a professor again, I saw it as another opportunity to be a student again. Under some of my favorite players and teachers, Ellis Marcellus, 
Harold Baptiste, another gentleman named Charlie Blanc. What was really amazing about Charlie Blanc's relationship to all of that is that he had done a book of one about one of my favorite tenor saxophones, being Sonny Rollins. So it's like the circle was really kind of getting complete along the way. And going back to teach at the University of New Orleans was really a learning opportunity as well as a teaching opportunity. And where in here did you start playing the clarinet? Had you done that from your earliest days? Oh, yeah. I've been a clarinet player from day one. I started at the age of eight. But like most kids, I started because my brother got a trumpet, and I wanted a clarinet. I wanted an instrument. And my mother picked a clarinet, really. I wanted to play the drums. And she said, I was too loud. And I said, okay, the saxophone. She said, well, it's kind of expensive. You might not stay with that. Why don't you try the clarinet? And saying no was not an option. So I said, okay. But as it turned out, um, the truth of the matter is that I'm, as a kid, I was severely asthmatic. And I still have asthma, but it's, it's well under control. She thought that playing the clarinet would actually help me with my medical condition. And after doing that, I'd play football, baseball, basketball. I've done everything, you know, without any kind of respiratory problems. So I always tell students when I do workshops that mother knows best because that was really my introduction to the clarinet. And as a result, music came out of that. It was really about a medicinal situation. And talk about uh, Prez's new clarinet on this record, which uh, this you could blindfold test people with this record and put it in track one, then put it in track two and say, okay, is this the same record? And uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great, a really great track. Talk about it a little bit. Well, it was my attempt to to try to write. Um, of course, for those who don't know, Leslie Young was is one of the world's greatest saxophone players ever. But he also played the clarinet with Count Basie's band. And, and before that, his first instrument was probably clarinet. I don't know right offhand, I'm, I'm sorry to say. But I, I need to do that homework, and I'll do it after this interview. But um, after hearing some of Leslie Young clarinet playing, it just made sense for me to write a song that was in the tradition of Leslie Young. Now, I don't think I got as much on point as his solo on Jumping at the Woodside um, when he's playing clarinet on the very end of it. But, you know, it was an attempt, at least. An attempt is what we do in jazz. It was an attempt to recognize Leslie Young on it. So that's why that's how President's new clarinet came about. Wasn't the bass clarinet your entree into Winton's? You've done your homework quite well. I'm impressed. It was my entree into Winton's circle. And the way that came about is that Winton composed a piece called Six Incompated Movies, or it's also known as Accent on the Offbeat. It was a piece commissioned by the New York State Theater for the New York City Ballet in 1993. And he wrote this piece called uh, Jubilo. It's the first movement of the of the piece and it has a very demanding bass clarinet part that is in the baritone saxophone book so um, I guess he has searched New York a bit 
and you couldn't really find someone that could really play the part the way he had envisioned it. And Wes Anderson, I think, was the one who said, hey, man, you should call Victor. He plays clarinet. He probably could play bass clarinet. So when he called me, he said, um, hey, man, I got this bass clarinet part that's really difficult. You think you can play? I said, man, sure I can. Just send it down here. So uh, he said, no, man, it is really difficult. I said, man, send the part. I can play it. I'm telling you, I can play it. So he said, okay, I'm going to have him FedEx it to you tomorrow. I said, fine, I'll look for it. So I hung up the phone. No, I didn't know the bass clarinet. <laughs> so I, I, but I did know I had it now. Um, his father had just purchased a brand new bass clarinet, ironically. And I knew I could borrow that instrument if I asked him. So I called him. I said, hey, Mr. Marcellus, um, went to just call me with this perfect bass clarinet. You think you can let me use your instrument? He said, man, my instrument is broke. I said, look, you let me borrow it. I'll get it fixed. I'll drive it to Baton Rouge right now to my repairman and get it fixed. He said, well, you can borrow it. So I borrowed the instrument. I drove to Baton Rouge, brought it to a gentleman named John Patterson, great repairman. He worked on the instrument, got back home. The music arrived the next day. I started shading on it. Now, wait a minute. You said you didn't own a bass clarinet. I did had, you ever, had you ever played a bass clarinet? Not very often. <laughs> Maybe two or three times. Well, you know, because in a high school band, they don't necessarily put their better clarinet players on the, on the bass clarinet. They should, but they don't. It's a very demanding instrument. So I hadn't really played the bass clarinet that often. You're the first person to ever bring that out in an interview. So I hadn't played the bass clarinet very often. But I knew I could play it if I spent some time on it. So um, the piece was very difficult. He wasn't kidding, man. And, um, but it was a great entry into um, that ensemble that featured, of course, Winton. Ryan Kaiser was on there. Um, Wycliffe Gordon and Ronald Westray. Wes Anderson, Todd Williams, myself. Pearl and Riley, Reginald Veal, and, and um, Eric Reed was in the band at that time on piano. So how long from the FedEx envelope's arrival at your doorstep to you actually having to go to New York City and play this piece? I had a week. I had <laughs> oh, a week man. to get the shade on it. But I had it together. Really. I was ready when I got there. When, when I got there, they were impressed. They were like, yeah, man, that's what I'm talking about. I said, okay. So um, immediately after the gig ended, and we got paid. I, I remember going home and buying a bass clarinet from the proceeds of the gig. It paid very well, I have to say. And um, I had already figured out what I was going to buy because I, I wasn't going to get caught in another situation where I didn't have a bass clarinet. And I just happened to have a baritone saxophone because of that trip I had done with Winton's father to Malaysia. I picked up a, bass, uh, a baritone saxophone there. So it kind of became also the opportunity for me to sort of acquire more of my repertoire of instruments. And just while we're kind of rounding out the clarinet conversation, you recorded a record where you played the whole family of clarinets, right? Yeah, uh, it's called uh, To Those We Love So Dearly. And really the, the theory behind that one is that over the years I have been asked to play cl so much clarinet. It just made sense to do an all-clarinet record because it's something that very few people have maybe thought about or even done. And not only to play just B-flat clarinet, because there have been a lot of great clarinet players, Eddie Daniels, Don Byron, Alvin Baptiste, who plays only clarinet. But the, the concept of this one was to play various clarinets, to play the B-flat, to play the E-flat clarinet, to play the bass clarinet, to play the, al um, the alto clarinet. I actually wanted to play a bass at home, but I didn't have enough time to get it. But um, it was just to explore different clarinets and how would those, those things come together. And not just to explore them in a, in a context of clarinets together, but with the traditional rhythm section of piano, bass, and drum, but this time with a trombone, because Wycliffe Gordon is on the majority of it. And for most, that might seem odd, because the trombone is going to overpower the clarinet. That's the first thing. Well, um, 
in most situations, I would say you're right. The, the trombone is going to overpower the clarinet, but it was Wyclef Gordon. So therefore, the amount of control he has, you know, was extraordinary. So I, I had to, we shared it so that we had a dialogue about the fact that he needed to keep the, the intensity and the power of the trombone in his line so it wouldn't lose that particular intensity when he played it. But at the same time, he had to be sensitive to the balance of the trombone clarinet, and he did a great job on the record. So it's uh, it's 93, you come up, you play the bass clarinet part with Winton, and then what's next? Well, I went back home after that, and a couple of months passed. I'm, I'm still teaching at the University of New Orleans, summer break, whatever goes on there. Fall semester starts in 1993, and then in October of 1993, I get a call from Winton. It's a Saturday afternoon. I have a gig with his father that night, as we've been doing for the past couple of years. And he says, hey, man, I need you to come on the road with me for a little while. I said, okay, great. To myself, I'm saying, oh, man, I've been waiting for this call for so long. Great. I said, well, when do you want me to come? He said, Monday. I said, Monday? I said, man, I got class Monday. I got to talk to your dad. He said, man, dad, I just got off the phone with my father. I should have asked him. He said, well, man, look, I'm in Maine. Call call my dad and ask him and call me back. So I get off the phone with him. I call his dad. His, his little brother Jason answers. He said, well, man, he's sleeping right now getting ready for the gig. I said, okay. Then I hang up the phone and I think about it for about 10 seconds. I said, man, he's calling somebody else right now. I'm calling and getting a ticket to come. Now. I called Winton up. I said, man, send the ticket. It's going to be okay. I'm going to figure this out. So he sends the ticket. Um, in the meantime, I got that gig that night I, I mentioned, and um, I haven't told his father yet. And we're talking about somebody I have the greatest amount of respect for in the world. I wasn't going to just disregard the program we had established. So when I saw him that night, I said, well, man, I got to talk to you about something. He said, well, what, man? I said, well, Wenton called me and asked me to come on the road. He said, man, I should have known that's what he wanted to ask you when he called. I don't know why I didn't think about it. He said, well, he wants me to come out Monday. He said, well, what did you tell him? I said, I told him yes. He said, good. If you'd have told him no, I'd have been upset with you, man. That's what you've been sharing for, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, man, my classes. He said, well, we'll have to figure out how we're going to cover those classes. So we worked out a system with Ellis Marcellus and Harold Baptiste and Charlie Blanc where I FedEx assignments daily, literally, back and forth from the road in New Orleans. And Winton had asked me to come out for two weeks. That was the agreement. Hey, can you come out for two weeks? I said, okay. So um, after about 10 days, Winton said, well, look, can you come out another two weeks? I was like, okay, I got to call your dad, but I'm sure we can work it out. So now the system is starting to come around. It's in November now. And uh, after... A month of that, he said, well, can you come out two more weeks? Now we're at Blues Alley because he used to play Blues Alley every late December. And then he would play the Village Vanguard early December. So um, I said, okay. So we we went through all of November and all of December with two weeks at a time. Then after the year was about to turn, he said, look, man, won't you just call the accountant and tell him to put you on payroll? I was like, okay, I can do that too. So um, I took a leave of absence from, from teaching for a semester. But what they told me is that they said, well, we can give you a leave of absence, but by March 1st, you have to make up your mind. Um, one way or the other, you can come back, but if you don't contact us, then we're going to you know, uh, assume you're not coming back and your contract will expire. I said, okay, well, I can do that. So I remember the part of the world we were in at that time. We were in Asia. And the day before March 1st, we were in Taiwan, Taipei, Taiwan. And because... 
I was going to do the gig as long as I could before when either fired me or told me that he wanted me to play permanently, which he, he hasn't told me to date, but I'm still in a band. Um, <laughs> I, I decided I was going to, when I left for that tour, that I would print up two letters to the University of New Orleans. One said, uh, thank you for the opportunity to have this leave of absence. I'll be returning to my teaching responsibilities in the fall of, of 1994. And the other one said, thank you for the teaching opportunity. I regret to inform you that I will not be returning. And I waited literally till the morning of March 1st to, to fax that letter from Taipei, Taiwan, to the Jazz Studies office at the University of New Orleans in New Orleans. And I said, from that point on, if I get fired, I'd have to deal with the consequences of whatever it was. So jokingly, I tell people I'm still on the road two weeks at a time. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been like a whirlwind, kind of that initial thing where you're just jumping from country to country, gig to gig. You still got this teaching job that you're kind of holding down in the back in New Orleans. I mean, that was a lot to shoulder all at one time. Yeah, because at that time we traveled 11 months a year. We took one month off, but we traveled 25 out of every month, 25 days out of every month. And we only went home to really take care of whatever you had to take care of at home. But we knew what it was going to be. Every first of the month we would be out touring again. But I tell you, it was some of the greatest times of my life, I have to say. Um, when I first joined the band, it, Walter Blandon and I were there at the same time for a brief period of time as a transition, only for like four days. So when I w was preparing to come out, Winton, I, I asked Winton actually, I said, hey man, what can I do to prepare? He said, nothing. You, you, there's nothing you can do, just come out. So when I got out there, uh, my first gig was the Iron Horse in Massachusetts. After we left there, I had maybe two more days to learn the book. And he had city movements in there. He had a um, blue interlude in the book. He had a couple of other pieces, large, large works, you know. And then he had another book that was just smaller works. I mean, just so much music. It was just so much to learn at one time. So quite often we'd be on the bus traveling like from midnight to six in the morning. And we'd all hang out after the gig and sit down, and listen to the gig maybe, and or watch some videos together. And then about 2.33, Castle start, you know, one by one going to bed. And this was one of those tour buses that had a lounge in the front of the bus and the back of the bus. So by 2.30, I was in the back of the bus shading. You know, every once in a while, somebody would poke their head and say, man, you okay back there? I was like, yeah, man, it's a lot of music. I got to learn this music for tomorrow. So literally, I was practicing every night on the bus, like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning until 5, 6, because I was determined I wasn't going to lose the gig because I didn't know the music. That took place many times, and some of those recordings from Live at the Village Vanguard was my first week in the band. That Black Coats from the Underground recording, where I missed that little transition part back in that I have to live with forever, was my first week in the band. But it was interesting because the first time I played the Vanguard, it seemed like every young tenor player in the city of New York must have heard that the gig was open. It was like vultures just converging on a piece of meat laying in the middle of the desert, like they said, Oh man, we're coming to get this gig. And then I was like that that piece of meat that was still alive. I was like, but I'm not dying easy, man. Y'all could come out. We're going to fight. It's going to be a battle, but it's not going to be an easy one. Let's talk about playing ballads. You do uh, a great tune on here called Petit Fleur, which a lot of people know from Sidney Bechet. And you do it so slow that it sounds like it's rubato throughout a lot of it. And uh, I, I really think one of the great talents is to be able to play a really slow ballad. Can you talk about your approach to ballad playing?
I heard a recording of Shirley Horn that Branford Marcellus recorded on with her. Actually, wouldn't record on the album too, but particularly the take was It Had to Be You. That was the first time I had really heard a ballad play. so slow. It was almost as slow as one could tolerate it is the way I describe it. And that's how I like to play ballads. Um, the great Benny Golson, tenor saxophonist, once said that to play slow is a, is when, when someone performs slowly, it is an opportunity for everyone to see everything they have to offer. There's no hiding between anything when it's a ballad. So for me, I try to interpret it like um, I often tell my students, I say, you should play a ballad like you're dancing with somebody that you never want the record to end. So that's why I tend to play my ballads so slow. And um, it gives me an opportunity to be a little bit freer with the melodic line as opposed to the way people play on medium tempo or up-tempo tunes. You tend to want to keep the rhythm pretty strict. But when I play a ballad, I want it to be like liquid that's flowing back and forth inside of a container. Um, the form of the piece is the the container that's keeping it in place, but the actual music is it has the ability to, to move around inside of a container as freely as it wants to. And what does that require of the rhythm section when you're playing a ballad that slow? One discipline, because um, the tendency is for everybody to want to push the tempo. But the reality is you have to be willing to participate inside of it. Creativity, because they have to figure out things to do that's going to add to the performance as opposed to take away from it. And just a knowledge of the history of, of great ballad playing, I think. It, it puts a great burden on the drummer because quite often the drummers just want to keep time in terms of quarter note pulses you might say but then i think for those who are creative it gives them an opportunity to address the ballad as if they're a painter and they can use different brush strokes and i don't mean just literally the brushes but strokes with sticks mallets and all kind of things to paint this pastel of different colors and whatnot inside of the ballad and greg was a is a master at that Hurl and Riley is another master like that. Lewis Nash. I'm speaking about people of my generation, but those are three people who really stand out in my mind who has who really have the discipline to really play slowly on a ballad. Now, most of the, the tunes on this record, about half of them or more, are your compositions. Do you have a lot of time to write music? Do you spend a lot of time writing music? Um, I don't have a lot of time to write music. I don't spend as much time writing uh, as I would like, but I'm getting better at that now. Um, it's been a, a conscious decision to try to write more. Um, I tend to write more when projects come up, like most artists. Um, if I don't have something, I generally don't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write a tune. But like um, at this moment, we have a concert with the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra, and it's, uh, the topic is, the, is about Blue Note. So it's all recordings from Blue Note that's going to be arranged for the, the big band by members of the orchestra. And the two pieces that I've been... Uh, afforded the opportunity to arrange or um the moon train that's one of my favorite tunes from larry larry young's unity with joe henderson one of my greatest influences and um the other one is cape verdean blues from horace silva so um it's given me a chance to really work on my big band skills again so i like to write i mean i think everybody in the jazz tradition should write because improvisation is composing emotion so how much of the time are you on the road these days it varies. Uh, the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra um, is on the road about 60 days a year now. That doesn't, And that's not including it. concerts in New York. We do those. But I mean literally on the road. At least 60 performances on a year. That, that's not road time, matter of fact, because there's days off in and all of that. Then I have my own opportunities. I'm here in Rochester, New York to perform. I'm going to Detroit, Michigan tomorrow from here. I was in Dallas, Texas last week doing uh, some workshops. So I get a fair amount of that in. Then I travel with 
Juilliard with my students. I just left Cutter less than a month ago for for two weeks, and then I do other things. We're going out to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Uh, we have a presence in Costa Rica. We've gone to Japan during the summer before. So there's a lot of travel. And you direct the jazz program at Juilliard. Right. I'm the autistic director of jazz. And what's that like? It's a great opportunity because I'm working with some of the, the finest young musicians around the, around the world, actually. We've had um, kids from Japan, uh, from Cuba, uh, from America. And to see them evolve is ultimately, I think, a very fulfilling thing um, because of the type of interaction I've had with great teachers myself. And I, I often tell them, I say, the goal of a great teacher is to be confident and comfortable with themselves so that if they are fortunate enough that their students become better than they are, then they have accomplished their goal. I got two more questions from you. You spent uh, a lot of time traveling the world uh, playing music, and you always hear the cliche about music being a universal language. Have you found that to be true as you've been traveling around the planet? Is it a universal language? I think it can be. I think it's just like um, someone trying to learn a language. You know, um, If more people would become exposed to it and begin to pick up the... Um, the parts of speech that make jazz very important, which is basically all of it, but at least start to be to learn some of the, the fundamental aspects of it, then the universality of it will be it will be greater and broader across the world. It's not quite there yet. And sometimes it's even more difficult in the United States than it is in Sweden. You know, they seem to be much more involved, informed about New Orleans jazz there than they are in New Orleans sometimes. But um, I think it has the potential to be a universal language. And the fact that you use the term language is really important because that's what jazz is, a language. It's, a, it's an opportunity for people to communicate with each other. In my teaching style, I try to really emphasize that point of it, that if we approach it as a language, then the more of that language you familiarize yourself with, the better you'll be able to communicate. What keeps the music fresh for you? One thing that keeps it fresh will be workshops like I did today at a high school Um School of the Arts, right. Um, I had the opportunity to sit down with two two different groups. One was a, a ninth grade and a 10th grade ensemble, and the second was the 11th and the 12th grade ensemble. And to see them actually attempting to perform, I mean, that keeps it fresh. And first of all, they were a respectful group of, of kids. So I think whenever you have that part in place, then you can begin to try to explore anything, uh, be it music, be it math, be it any kind of educational form. But when I see them... Um, take part in it, and then I see them laughing and becoming active in it, and you see them having fun with their peers and with the clinicians, and they're not inhibited by things around them or things they've heard, then it becomes a lot of fun. And that's, that's the kind of things that really keep me fresh. Well, Victor Goins, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. I thank you for taking the time to do it. My pleasure. I look forward to doing it again someday soon. Thanks.
That's a tune by Victor Goins called As We Mature, We Learn to Take Our Time from the saxophonist's new record on Crisscross. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com where you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to lots of other jazz sites. You'll also find links to subscribe to the show. And if you can, please do it via iTunes. It's useful for me and also useful for you because you'll always have the latest episode on your computer or in your MP3 player whenever you want it. I write interviews and reviews from time to time for allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. I hope you'll go there and check those out. If you'd like to contact The Jazz Session, send me an email at jason at thejazzsession.com or call 585-473-5304. You can also join the mailing list, and I would like to welcome all the new members to that, which is very exciting. You'll find the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the jazz world. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thanks a lot for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. <laughs>